Hello, Ryerson. Welcome back for another episode. You're listening to Blue and Gold. From the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Najuda Melis. The November 3rd, 2020 U.S. election might be the most anticipated in history. This week, we chat with young Canadians and Americans about the outcomes they hope to see on Tuesday and how they expect the election to impact their lives for the years to come. We also speak with Wayne Petrosi, an expert in American politics and Ryerson professor, for his election predictions and analysis. Today, we're joined by a panel of students and recent students to discuss the state of politics in America, how they feel about the upcoming election, and what's at stake for them. Annie Smith is a Canadian-American dual citizen attending the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Casey Stein is an American student at the University of British Columbia, and Rachel Chen is a Canadian who grew up in the United States but is now here back with us in Canada working as a journalist. So I'm going to start off by asking all of you what is exactly at stake in this election for you. And like we said, you all have uh, very different backgrounds. So um, I'm going to start off with Annie. You're a dual citizen, but you don't live in the U.S. You're living in the U.K. So what does this election mean for you? Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously, like I voted, I sent in my mail-in ballot. And even though I am not currently living in the U.S., and I do have that dual citizenship, which kind of feels like a safety net in a way but my family is still living in the U.S. so obviously I fear for them and I'm I'm voting for them and I'm voting just because being an American I want things to be okay and because America is a world superpower I do worry about a lot of things for example its influence it has on like reproductive rights you know signing the Geneva Consensus this week issues like climate change and issues like COVID the COVID crisis you know the U.S. does have a lot of influence with issues like those for the rest of the world. So yeah, it is really important to me. I have a lot of like pent up anxiety this week and I've only just now linked it to like the election. I'm like, maybe that's why. But yeah, I'm feeling hopeful. How about you, Casey? Um, Yeah, I would say I'm also definitely feel like there's a lot at stake in this election. I feel like it might be the biggest election in American history. I also tried to send my ballot, but my vote has not counted because I requested my mail-in ballot at the beginning of September and didn't get it until like early October. Kind of feels like I got, was a victim of voter suppression because then I sent in a write an absentee ballot and it didn't get counted. But anyway, I think there's so many different things that are reasons why it would be really bad if uh, Donald Trump wins re-election. If there's four more years of Donald Trump with COVID, with all the unrest, like it's not going to be good. You know, like best case scenario is, I don't know, he dies (laughs) and Mike Pence takes over or something. And then in terms of climate change too, we're already, we're at like a six to seven year window before we get to the point where we've done irreversible damage to our ability to keep the temperature rising from getting too out of hand. That to me, more than anything else, even COVID, if we're going to be honest, is the biggest thing for me because the U.S. has often been viewed as like the country that should be followed in Western democracies. And it's not setting that example right now. I would say like climate change and the integrity and security of the U.S. itself are the two things that are most at stake, in my opinion. Rachel, so you're the one person here who can't actually vote in this election. Tell us why this election matters to you. Yeah, um, so just as somebody who grew up in the States and spent like 
all of my youth there, basically. It's really scary on one hand, just because my parents are still there and my little sister's there. And my parents are also Canadian citizens. So being in a place where you know that you don't have any say over what goes on for so long, you're basically disenfranchised for your entire life. Like my parents, I don't know when my parents have last voted because they don't live in Canada. But then in the States, there's like this apathy because we've never been able to have a say in what happens, right? I really related to what Annie said about like anxiety this week where she's like, wait, am I anxious because of the election? And I remember very clearly after 2016, I was an undergrad in Canada. I was like, why do I feel so bad? And it was the day after the election. I was like, oh, right, because there's this election that I had zero say over. And in the first few months, I remember Trump was just like hammering out these policies, a lot of them about immigration. And my family is fully um, dependent on immigration policy in the U.S. right now, right? And it was just like this crushing blow. So I think over the last few years, being in Canada and being so far removed from it, I've been lucky that I've been able to like not think about it as much. Like I know a lot of my Canadian friends follow American news. Personally, even though I'm more invested than they are in it, I don't follow it because it's just like, it physically makes you feel awful. So to answer your question, what this election means is that it, it kind of determines the future of my family on a personal level, whether or not they would have to try and move back to Canada, even though, like I said, like my parents haven't lived in Canada in years. It's like a whole new country. And I know that my family also is like in a much, much luckier position, much more privileged position than a lot of the people who are directly affected by the immigration laws. But it's a lot clear to me how badly things can go for the families that are affected by like ICE and you have the whole discourse that's been going on about like children in cages and immigrants who are dying and detention centers etc like that and I'm just thinking about like how lucky my family was but basically this election to me it's a huge thing about immigration because it's not like Obama's immigration policies are great or whatever but like you just look at the deaths that um, Trump's administration has had and that's a very personal level for me I think from a very international perspective of somebody who's living in Canada now and just watching, <laughs> it's all about the immigration, I think. One of the issues in U.S. elections is that young people don't really vote at the rates that older voters do. And so despite maybe changes in political ideology, uh, young people aren't voting. Do you think that it'll be any different this time around? Yeah, I would definitely say I do think it's going to be very different. We are already seeing the rates of the early voting turnout. 2016, Hillary Clinton was just not good enough and Donald Trump hadn't been president for four years. So there wasn't that like energy there. But now it's been four years of the most fascist president that America has ever had, which honestly is saying something. And I think everybody, but especially younger people who are going to have that increased voter turnout, I do think this will be higher than future elections. But I also think this bump will probably be permanent personally, um, just because this is instilling in our minds the importance of voting and like how bad things can get if we don't care. And for so long, there's been that voter apathy. And it's like, yeah, well, if we're apathetic and the only people who turn out to vote are uh, the establishment Democrats, and the people who like Donald Trump and then Donald Trump wins, that's what's going to happen. So everybody should vote whether you want to or not. And I think that's hopefully going to become a trend that continues to last after 2020. Anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, Rachel? <laughs> the most exciting thing happened to me the other day. I remember back in 2016, I was like begging all my high school friends and be like, please vote. I can't vote, but I need you to vote for not Trump. So the other day, my friend texted me and he was like, I just wanted you to know that I voted. Are you proud of me? And I was like, oh my God, yes, I'm so proud of you. And I think it was probably like his first time voting. 
I can kind of understand it because I did a piece for Flair a while ago on voter barriers in Canada and it it made me laugh. Obviously there are barriers in Canada, but I was just like looking at the barriers that people were listing and they were very serious about it in Canada, which is great because I do think there's always room for improvement. But then I just like go and have a conversation with one of my American friends trying to vote in some election and it's just like this nightmare. But that being said, yeah, the stats have been really great. Like I'm from Texas and people are seriously talking about Texas flipping blue or like it being a purple state right now. And Having lived there for so long, I would never have imagined that. But I saw somewhere that they said Texas was actually not a Republican state, but it's a non-voting state. Seeing my friends who, you know, usually don't vote actually voting is really exciting. I would love to see Trump out, so (laughs) hopefully. I think that young people in general just have like a more nuanced view of politics and things going on right now. Like I saw an example the other day where it was talking about how a lot of older people have this mindset of being socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And young people are just kind of getting fed up with that because they're like, yeah, okay, like the economy is important, especially in COVID times, but you can't just vote for Trump and like completely neglect everyone's human rights. And I think that seeing like how much young people are participating in protests, for example, in the past four years, whether that be with gun control, with Black Lives Matter, climate change, reproductive rights. I think that's kind of a good indicator to me that a lot of these issues that are at stake at the election are something that young people have this unique perspective on, especially with climate change, because I feel like we're kind of the generation that's really going to pay for that. So with an election like this, we just feel like it's a lot more important than our parents do, and it's getting us to come out and vote. In Canada, for a lot of people, they don't really know anybody who supports Trump. And that's because polls in Canada show that if Canadians were able to vote in this election, 80 to 90% of them would vote for Biden. So I guess I want to ask you guys, since you've lived alongside Americans, if there's people in your circles that you know who are voting for Trump, And what's their rationale? What have you heard from them? Because I think a lot of Canadians are always wondering and asking, well, why are people voting for this guy? Personally, I think that it's partially a psychological thing because I think what's happening is these people who are voting for Trump in general tend to be people who are fed up with their lives. They have really internalized this belief that everything is a result of the system and the way the system has messed them up, which in a lot of ways is true. But ultimately, I think part of what's going on from what I've understood is they don't care what Trump does. They just like that he's destroying the system and his raw, what they would say, authenticity. It's pretty clear that it's not actually authentic. But I I really do think it's honestly like a partially a personal thing where some of these people haven't necessarily figured out the best way to deal with um, negative emotions. And that's true about Donald Trump as well. I think it's definitely like being white is a big factor there, but we're also seeing among um, male Latinos that they're actually like voting for Trump more consistently than you think. It's only males, not females. And for me, that kind of suggests people have internalized this view of the world being unfair to them they just need to kind of, you know, flip off everything that doesn't go their way and that Donald Trump has kind of taken that approach. Yeah, and I think too, I've just been really surprised with how uneducated Trump voters seem. And I don't mean that like necessarily in like a totally accusatory way, but genuinely there are people who believe that COVID is a hoax, it does not exist, and that we're being put in this lockdown for just no reason. And that if a Democrat gets elected, 
they will take away our guns and our religious freedoms and take away the police. And it's like a genuine belief that these things will happen. So I really do think it's just kind of these people that have been listening to Trump in the beginning because they were kind of enticed by his rhetoric of, oh, I'll protect your jobs, I'll protect the economy. And now they literally believe everything that he's saying and he is their news source and everything else is like fake news. It is just like this perspective that we don't have and we don't really understand, but it's almost like a cult. It's, it's kind of scary. Um, but yeah, I definitely know a lot of Trump supporters just growing up in Tennessee. With young people, I think there is more of like an educated approach to, you know, oh, like a Republican would be good for the economy, especially with COVID and things like this. Um, but yeah, with older people, I think it's just like a matter of believing what he's saying and, you know, not looking at anything else. Yeah, I think just coming from two perspectives, one is um, I study like information at U of T. So I think about algorithms a lot. And then the other one is just thinking about like coming from, again, like I said, Texas, which is a very Bible Belt religious state. So on one hand, I know a lot of people who are close friends or like people I care about who all voted for Trump back in 2016 because of religious reasons. And I find it hard to grapple with personally, just because I know like a lot of the reasons they have also conflict with stuff that Trump does, like, you know, being an alleged rapist, for example. But that's, I think, one reason why people did. And I do imagine that there's a lot of people in like the evangelical Christian community, which I come from, that probably will vote for him again or already did. The other thing, though, is that I also can't be entirely angry at people. Like my mom is really great and that she knows that I'm a journalist, so she'll like run fake news by me that she gets from her friends. She gets sent a lot of fake news, and that stuff is super convincing. Like, she'll send me videos. I can only debunk them because I've been trained to like, do that for my job. If I wasn't a journalist, I don't know if I would be able to tell the difference for her. I think it's bizarre how deeply entrenched like social media is into our lives and how much that affects what kind of information people get. I know people who like believe that QAnon is real, and they're still going to vote. So I think on one hand, it's a lot of people who are intentionally voting for Trump. And there's a lot of people who vote for Trump because the information that they've been provided is like absolutely not real. You've all touched on having a level of anxiety about this election. But, you know, a lot of people are talking about what happens after November 3rd. And there's concerns that Trump won't concede or that this would go to courts or that there would be political unrest. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on what happens after November 3rd and if you have any of these kinds of anxieties that are, you know, a lot of pundits talk about. I've seen a few videos with interviews of Trump supporters and they talk a bit about how Trump won't accept election results if he loses and how they'll incite like a civil war. And that narrative is just really picking up more and more as we get closer to the election that there will be this outcry and outrest if Trump is not reelected. So that is really scary. And, you know, I've tried to like start talking to like my friends and family and kind of like on social media right now, people are starting to say like, even if Biden is elected and there does start to be this like unrest in the streets, like don't go out and protest, like try to be safe. And I think seeing, for example, like Black Lives Matter protests and how violent those got, I think, sorry, hopefully it's just like a strong favor for Biden that it can't be contested. I would say I was kind of hoping if he does try to stay in office that they would like stage a coup and oust him and put Biden in. I read an article by The Atlantic a few weeks ago how Donald Trump's approach to the office has been one of extreme laziness. And so this article was suggesting that he could have the approach towards the election of the same thing where he's going to hear the results and he's going to go, no, it's wrong. 
but he's not actually going to do what has to be done that somebody like a Richard Nixon might do to make sure that they actually stay in office. But I, I do think the main thing is, even though I think it's very unlikely, if it happens, it is, as Annie was saying, I don't think it'll be a civil war because I think the intelligence agencies have a little bit too much power, but it would be bad. Yeah, I think I also have considered lots of worst case scenarios. I have one friend who uh, is American, but she went to school in Canada with me and then she went back to the States. So we've just been talking about it a lot. And so much so that we were like, okay, what's the escape plan if you need to escape to Canada? She's done some serious research about this because she's actually there and she was also actually terrified. And she's like, okay, I've done the research and even in the worst case scenario, it seems like the U.S. will not explode like right away. Like there will be like some time to like move if you need to move. I, like I said, I grew up in the States, so I know American government way better than I know Canadian government. And like there are protections in place exactly for presidents like Trump that seem to have zero regard for American democracy. And that's that's a little bit comforting. So the three of you don't live in the U.S. right now. And so I was wondering whether the changes that have happened to the U.S. over the last four years, I think the climate, we can all agree there is has changed a lot politically. Has that influenced at all your decision on whether you would want to return to the U.S.? Yeah, a thousand million percent. Oh, my goodness. I think if things like started getting better, then maybe. But I do think there's just been so much damage done that, for example, I think about like the next generation. I'm like, you know, if I had a family, I don't think that America is the best place for them to grow up. Being in a country where those things just aren't that difficult, you know, when you don't have to go broke because of healthcare or you don't have to, you know, go broke because of education and, you know, all these things are kind of just treated more as human rights. It makes potential of returning to America that that much less attractive. So yeah, I think it's definitely like influenced me wanting to stay in the UK. Um, I know that Trump got elected like the year before I left to come over here. And ever since then, things have just been kind of getting worse and worse. And so it's just a more sustainable future for me. Having access to healthcare is something like I didn't realize was so easy. And then also just like those voting barriers, like I voted in every single election that I've been eligible for. Right now, like my anxieties are definitely more about like whether or not my parents need to come back to Canada. There are a lot more jobs in the U.S. than there are in Canada. And I, I'm still like in love with the U.S. Like I still love the U.S. for the place that it is. I love its culture, I love its people, et cetera, whatever. But the more time I spend away from it, the more it feels like there's so many things wrong with it that are so easy. It's kind of like, like if you're in a really bad relationship and you don't see it and then when you leave, you're, it's like glaringly obvious and that's kind of how I feel about it now. So I like don't know what going back would look like for me. I pretty much agree with what uh, Rachel and Annie have said. I. I'm in a situation where I'm in Canada, but my whole family, like extended family, everybody is in the U.S. Like I know my mom has kind of wanted to move up here where my dad's pretty set in staying in Texas. If Trump wins re-election, which I don't think he will, I'm, I'm staying in Canada. I already know I'm staying here for two years after I graduate to get my PR. And But I, I really do. I love my country. I just think like kind of like what Rachel was saying, you can't, if you want somebody else to change, it's not in your power to make them do it. It's only in the power of them. You know, I've loved Kelowna, BC, and I've loved this. This has like been the best time in my life the past three years. Like literally when I went to the doctor and I started walking out and I was like, do I need to pay you guys? The way they looked at me, 
like they were so shocked like what like no you don't need to pay this is just the doctor's office what are you talking about um and i've often thought about i'm somebody who's struggled with mental health conditions myself and i'm lucky because i've been able to treat them my friends are not that lucky because uh, some of them don't have as much money um and so they're basically just screwed because they can't afford to get the treatment or the medications that they need uh and so i'm here studying at an awesome university able to get everything that I need, hoping to go out and do some, it's always made me pissed off because it's literally like, there's no reason why I couldn't have been in a reverse role. And in Canada, it's not like that. In Canada, it's everybody is able to get care. It might take you a little bit longer, but you're not going to get put up to the lottery on whether or not you're going to be able to survive if you have conditions that affect you. It's been so interesting hearing all of you guys talk about this because for us, Canadians who haven't lived in the States, everyone's become kind of a pundit and we talk about American politics, but to hear the perspectives of people who, two of you who are American and Rachel, you lived in the US, uh, you all have a relationship to the States is much more insightful. I really appreciate all of you sharing your experiences with me and all of the Ryersonian, I guess, appreciates it as well. So thanks guys. We chat with Dr. Wayne Petrosi, a professor emeritus at Ryerson and expert in political theory, comparative politics, and public administration. He is active as a speaker and commentator within the media and the Ontario Public Service. We all know that we're not likely to know who won the election on November 3rd because of mail-in ballots. What do you think is going to happen after November 3rd? I, I think it's, we may very well know the results Tuesday night. Really? Well, why do you think a lot of people then are saying that pundits and journalists and whatnot are saying that we, we won't know on November 3rd? Well, one thing to keep in mind that um, many states have mail-in ballots, and many of those states allow the votes to be counted as they're submitted. So it's only in a few states where they have to wait until election day to begin counting. Okay, so in, in, in many states with mail-in ballots, they've been counting them as they've been receiving them. So why you asked, so the wire pundits saying maybe not? Well, the maybe not is predicated on that's going to be a real close race and states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin are going to be critical and tilting one way or the other. And I doubt that that's going to be the case. Well, a lot of people have been saying that if it is a tight race, there may be some sort of political unrest. Trump may question the results. Do you anticipate something like that happening? Oh, I think regardless of whether a verdict is declared that night or not, he's going to question the results. He's been questioning the process throughout the campaign. It's one of the, apparently, it's the only card he feels he has left to play. Probably explains why he lost so much in his casinos in Atlantic City. He doesn't know when to hold them. So, you know, for that reason, yes, he will contest it. I don't think it's going to be a close outcome. So I, I don't think that he'll get a lot of traction among his supporters. And, and there are many. Yes, they will persist. They will make almost fantasy-like claims about vote miscounts, uh, ballots stolen, blah, blah, blah. But... I, I just, I don't think we're going to be in a situation where it's so tight on the Electoral College side that we're going to have to dwell on it. 
there's a lot of Canadians working in the U.S. There's a lot of young Canadians who aspire to work in the U.S. one day. And the political climate there has shifted. So let's say Trump does win. Do you see this affecting how people view the U.S. in terms of a destination to go work, to succeed, find opportunity? That's already happened as a consequence of the four years of his first term. Uh, There has been a reorientation among highly skilled immigrants into looking at countries of destination in the developed world. Uh, So, I mean, that's already taking place. That's why some large tech companies have, in fact, opened campuses in Canada because they're finding it easier to recruit than to recruit in in a campus back in the United States. So that's been the case with Google. Uh, That's been the uh, the case with Amazon. And so do you think that a Joe Biden win would reverse some of that damage, or do you think the damage is already done? I think his four years have surfaced an issue that's really at the heart of America's existence that for reasons that, frankly, I don't understand, many people hadn't realized was there. You know, racism isn't new. Police shooting black men unarmed is not new. I I think for too long, too many people have preferred not to see those things. You know, it's, it's always puzzled me. I still don't quite understand it. I can recall at Ryerson, there, there's a school of urban and regional planning, and they used to do field trips. They'd often go to American cities. And I was always puzzled, because I, and I would ask the students, often they took, would take a course of mine as an elective, like, what are you doing there? Well, you know, we're looking at patterns of urban development and this and that. I said, but they're totally unlike us. And they said, what do you mean? Well, I said, for example, you're in Detroit. There isn't a single grocery store up until recently. I said, can you name a Canadian city where you literally have to drive out of the city to go to a grocery store? I said, can, can you name a Canadian city with 10,000 abandoned residential properties? No, well, I can name you 20 American cities. We, we didn't, for whatever reasons, we, we, we just didn't see it. It's been there all along. This fella has had the effect of surfacing it in such a harsh fashion that, uh, yeah, it's going to take a while for us to not remember this. So, yes, the impact will persist after he's exchanged his orange makeup for an orange jumpsuit. So you went uh, a Joe Biden win and you think that it's not going to be close. There's a lot of people who don't want to believe the polls because they feel that the polls were wrong in 2016. So what makes you so confident that Joe Biden will win this time? 2016 was a campaign characterized by quite low voter turnout. In the city of Detroit alone, 40,000 fewer black people voted for the Democrats, just in the city of Detroit. What's happened this time is in his attempt, President Trump's attempt to energize his base, he's been so inflammatory, so hypercritical that he's actually animated Democrats. So I think what you're going to see also Tuesday night, uh, the highest turnout in over 100 years. And that turnout isn't just going to be Trump supporters coming out in mass. It's also going to be Democratic supporters 
And that means a much higher turnout in the black community this time than you saw last time, a much higher, tur a higher turnout in your demographic than last time, significantly higher. And as for the polls, the national polls last time weren't that far off, actually. The problem was at the statewide polls, where it seems pollsters, when they do your sampling, you, you, you try to sample the population so that it mirrors the community that you're trying to get a sense of. One of Trump's major bases of support, white male, okay, working class voters, they were underrepresented. And as a consequence, those local, those state polls were more inaccurate. And that could actually make the difference in winning and losing. They've come to terms with that. The pollsters have. They've redone their sampling. They're more mindful now. A lot more white, non-college educated American voters, males, came out to vote. That's not going to happen this time, even if more of them vote, because one, they're going to be counted in already in the polling that we're doing. And the second and more critical point, there aren't enough of them to counterweigh what's happening on the other side, among women, again, among African-American, and among young demographics. So let's talk about the hypothetical situation of a Biden presidency, because he is really ahead of, in the polls and you mm -hmm. anticipate his win. Do you see a Biden presidency being any different to an Obama presidency? It's going to have to be because of what so much has changed on the ground. Truth is, opportunity slipped through his fingers in the first two years in office when they controlled both houses of Congress and the White House. The things that should have been done didn't get done. Now, there might have been good reasons for that later on in his term. Biden is now committed, the Democratic Party, I will be running in 2024. And he's given the inside edge to a woman of color to replace him at the top of the ticket in 2024. So why he's indicated generational change, that he's going. He doesn't have to worry about holding on to his political goodwill because he wants to get a second term. And he's going to spend it, I think, on social justice matters, on equity issues, in, in areas of law and order, justice reform, economic inequality. Things will get done this time that wouldn't have otherwise. Now, I, I just should add one caveat. Uh, I'm also assuming, or presuming, however you want to put it, that uh, next Tuesday night, they not only keep control of the House, they'll probably add to that a majority, uh, they have a very good chance to take control of the Senate. It could be the one roadblock Republicans held onto the Senate. They would slow everything down to the to a crawl. I don't think that's actually going to happen. So if they if they have that, both houses, the presidency, then yes, the reform agenda will move forward. Now, one of the interesting things that's happened over the last four years is how the Republican Party has changed, right? And a lot of people say, you know, Trump took the Republican Party hostage. What do you think is going to happen to the Republican Party if Biden wins, the Democrats get the Senate, they get the House of Representatives? Do you think that the nominee for the Republicans in 2024 will be another populist like Trump, you know, maybe a Tucker Carlson, something like that? Or do you think 
that, you know, will they go back to someone who is more establishment, a Marco Rubio? Your question indicates you're already going along with the Republican narrative. Some of them always have talked about Trump as some kind of deviant. He's not a deviant. He is a culmination of a process that has been transforming the Republican Party for the last 50 years. By the early 60s, the Republicans had decided they could not give in to civil rights movement. And so they turned their back on any hope of votes in the African-American community and other communities of color. They then had to decide, okay, now what? And they placed their money on, we're going to appeal to white voters. Now, we're not stupid like this fellow is. We're going to use language that codes it. We're going to embrace states' rights. The idea that everything should be left local. Alabama should be left to decide what's best for Alabama. And if Alabama thinks it's best to keep black folks in separate schools, the federal government should stay out of their business. And that actually became their policy. We're going to turn this upside down. We're going to get all the Democrats, Southern states that used to be Democrat, they're going to be Republican because we're gonna talk about crime, we're gonna talk about states' rights, we're gonna talk about choice in terms of education, yeah, we're gonna keep black kids out of schools that my, my kids go to. And won Nixon the presidency in 1968 and 72. It was the heart of Reagan's policy in the 1980s. Only problem with this bet was at the same time as all this is unfolding, population changes. White folks are beginning to represent less and less and less the total of the total vote. There's a demographic time bomb. You put yourself in a losing position. So they ran themselves into a corner. And you combine that with some of their traditional economic policies, which in fact alienated the people they're trying to get to. And what you got then with Trump was someone who was going to pull the curtain open, let people see people of color, immigrants, they all knew their place. Now they don't. And look what it's done. So the Republican Party, he's a creature of that party. And he's cruder than what they would like, no doubt. But he brought back some of the people they had alienated in that white constituency. So, you know, when the party talks about, you know, what now? Well, they should have asked that question before the last 50 years unfolded. What's the party going to do? Well, they're, they're going to try to follow that narrative of yours and say, oh, he was a deviant. He's really not like us. He was a, a, like a bastard child of some kind. The language of, of code doesn't work now after, after what people now say quite openly. The ball and chain on their ankles is race. And they haven't been able to deal with it in three and a half centuries as a country. And I don't see how they do that in a quick two-year, three-year period so that they can turn around and compete effectively in an election in four years' time. I guess the last thing I want to ask is a lot of people say that there's a lot on the line in this election in terms of democracy, in terms of race, rhetoric, uh, mm -hmm. health care. But a lot of those issues are American issues. So what is at stake for Canadians in this election who will be watching on Tuesday night? You know, what's at stake is, is unfortunately, the fact that we share the longest undefended border in the world with them, that what happens there impacts us. 
whether it's in terms of travel, of trade. So it does matter to us. Mr. Trump, uh, during his first during his first term, you know, on more than one occasion, treated Canada with contempt. That's the kinds of things that upset relations with, between the countries that made us doubt that these folks were reasonable, trustworthy, that you could take them at their word and that their word meant something. So uh, certainly a second term of that would, would make that ir- irrevocably the case. You know, most of us before had a kind of fondness for America, in part because so many of us have family on both sides of the border. In fact, border communities, interestingly enough, have a higher disapproval rating than in, in, in Canadian metropolitan areas away from the border. Uh, you know, for us, it's a bit remote. For them, it's like two minutes away. So that's all I have. Thank you so much. Tuesday night will be very exciting, and we'll see how your predictions turn out to be. You no, know, I could be the biggest fool in town. <laughs> Let's hope not. This week, the Ryersonian's editorial team is releasing a special project on the American election. Here are the other stories we're following. Sidra Jaffrey and Nabiha Beg wrote about how in 2020, social media is being used to promote voting more than ever before. Gavin Mercier, Cole Broxham, and Sabrina Porgasemi explore how the election might affect Canada-U.S. border closures and how those closures in turn impact international trade and students at Ryerson. Jasmine Ratch and Kayla MP wrote about why the U.S. election is such an international spectacle and has become its own entertainment industry. And no, it has nothing to do with Borat. Well, almost nothing. That's all for this week's Blue and Gold. Thanks a lot for listening. Catch up with us next week for more of your community's top stories. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and Ryerson School of Journalism. I'm your host, Nujuda Malise, and our executive producers are Jasmine Ratch, Sidra Jaffrey, and Alex Sear. Our editor-in-chief is Patrick Swadden, and our managing editor is Michelle Allen. Our instructors are Peter Baker-George and H.G. Watson. Until next time. Thank you.